You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. Later in the program, we have Civic Conversations, a segment in collaboration between the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County and WFHB. Today, we welcome Dr. Michael Hicks, Distinguished Professor of Economics and Business Research and Director of the Center of Business Economic Research at Ball State University. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro provides a rundown of recent news in the disability community on a new episode of Disabilitin. But first, your local headlines. At the January 16th meeting for the Richland Bean Blossom School Board of School Trustees, Assistant Superintendent Matt Irwin proposed an increase in the full day rate for three-year-olds attending Edgewood Early Childhood Center. Uh, as you know, we run the preschool as a service. It's not something that's a money-making endeavor for the school corporation. We subsidize that. Um, and so one of the things that we're very conscious of is, is the quality of programming that we're providing and the affordability of what it is that we're providing as well because we know the value of a quality preschool education. Irwin proposed a $3 increase, which would raise prices from $32 to $35 per day and could bring in an estimated $9,000 to the school corporation. Um, but there would be um, a $3 increase for the full day daily rate for three-year-olds because you, can, you can't have as many three-year-olds in the room when you look at some of the NACI and passive quality requirements when it comes to staffing levels, as well as there's a little bit more care and possibly diapering, some other things like that that go along with uh, working with students of that age. Um, and it is a very common thing across, uh, across different um, preschool facilities and daycare facilities. The board approved the proposal for the 2024-25 school year. Their next meeting was a special session held on January 24th at 5 p.m. The Bloomington Utilities Service Board met on January 16th, 2024. Lake Lemon Conservancy District Manager Adam Casey gave a presentation on their ongoing projects and the work they have been doing to reduce sediment buildup in the lake. I just wanted to give an update on some of the things that have been going on um, recently, and I think you'll be happy to see them and some of the progress that we have been making. First of all, this is an image of Lake Lemon on the eastern edge where Bean Blossom Creek comes in. Um, this is an image in the early spring. We have a lot of sediment that comes into Lake Lemon. That's our number one issue is the sediment management and then trying to retain water volume. So we started the Lake Lemon Sediment Management Project in the early 2000s, and we're continuing on that. The purpose is really to manage the lake and enhance wetland functionality, enhance and maintain recreation, uh, then increase the longevity of the lake. In this first couple slides, I'll just kind of go through a little bit of history and then where we are at. So history of sedimentation. This is an image from a 1974 report um, from Army Corps and uh, some other areas that just show the lake limits split up when they're looking at the longevity of the lake. 
So back in this 1974 image, they estimated about 40,000 yards of sediment coming into Lake Glimmen per year. And the east end, they had a nominal lifespan or usable lifespan of about 80 years. And I'm not sure if there is a laser on this, but those dash marks on the right-hand side are what they call the east end past that. That is all gone now. The nominal lifespan um, has long passed, probably 15 years ago. Those peninsulas on the north and south just have access channels now that are in those areas, um, so there really is no water capacity. And that's kind of the line in the sand that we're drawing for maintenance. We recently worked with Christopher Burke and a couple other engineering firms to look at actual sediment loading that's going on in Lake Lemon. With those initial um, estimates about 40,000, those are way off. What we've actually found between 2014 and 2019 is about 136,000 yards of sediment coming in to the lake per year, which is a massive amount. And it's, it's, it's very hard to manage, but I think we are, are getting to that point. Casey shared their overarching goal is to maintain water quality and recreation potential and how they have been working to achieve it. Prior to my time, and I've been managing since 2015, I was a lake biologist a couple of years prior to that. Um, our overarching goals, which is also our goals of the lease of the city, is maintaining water quality and recreation potential. We started in-house operation in 2009. Between 2009 and 2020, we actually had in-house barge operation. During that whole time span, we averaged about 10 to 11,000 cubic yards removed of sediment per year. Um, which essentially just maintained these access channels along the eastern coves and where the homes are. And then we've also been uh, linear or stabilizing the shoreline, over 15,000 linear feet stabilized. So we've done this all in-house um, with some layer grant money from DNR, Lake and River Enhancement. Early on, the rest is through the taxpayers at Lake Women. So after we did our sediment transport studies, we realized we're not even keeping up or making an impact with this. You know, we're moving 10,000 yards a year. We're looking at 120 plus coming in per year. So what we actually did was work with Shrewsbury and Christopher Burke and came up with a management plan in 2019. All these different images are little aspects that we thought of. Um, the big zones in the open lake, one through five were dredging zones just so we could segment and monitor what we were looking at. The other stuff in the east, we're looking at opening up old creek channels, kind of enhancing the flow of water through the wetlands to capture sediment, how we can best slow down the sediment and then capture in those areas. What we ultimately found out um, from our sediment transport studies and with Christopher Burke is that we're really not going to capture sediment any faster than that existing delta is doing, so we need to focus on the dredging. Kind of our most cost effective is to remove that sediment once it lands there. So in 2019, we purchased a 13 acre plot of land um, with the taxpayer dollars on the south shore of Lake Lemon to kind of start our sediment management project with the hydraulic dredging. We sold a $1. million bond and then as well when the markets were really low to fund this initial land purchase and then kick off this initial uh, hydraulic dredging project and the creation of our disposal basins. He said the biggest problem they have is deciding where to put the sediment after they dredge it out of the lake and the toxic algae blooms that grow in the lake. The biggest issue that we have out there is besides money is where do we put the sediment? And it's very tough. We're in ravines. There's not much farmland around there. So this is, again, back to our elements map. On the bottom, 
Um, there's kind of a pond that's highlighted there. That is where we'll be starting our 2024 project. One of the reasons we loved this area is because the hazardous algal blooms, the blue-green algae, which is a very hot topic now, are just off the charts in this pond. There's like minimal connectivity. There's no wave action, no vegetation. So our plan is to fill this in during this 2024 project. And then per our permitting and per our plan, what we'll actually do is do a constructed emergent wetland. So we'll plant that. So it'll actually be a treatment wetland. It'll still allow the flood buffering capacity, but it'll be vegetated to take up the nutrients and actually clean the water coming through. So we're both accomplishing the dredging um, and then enhancing water quality with this. Board member Amanda Burnham asked if they received any complaints from residents near one of the sediment dumping grounds. Casey responded. The first area that you were using for the sediment um, dumping, it looked to be that there weren't a lot of homeowners around it. It was very much land, kind of landlocked in there, correct? Correct. This, yeah, this second one, that this last one that you just showed before you came up, um, runs around, runs along North Shore, and there's a lot of housing there. So uh, it may be too, um, it may be premature to start that discussion, but are there, have there been any concerns from homeowners in that area? Um, so really, the, it's been great feedback about what we have been doing. It's very visual with the dredging that's going on. That actual area on the northern side does not have any direct homeowners along that side. On South Shore, there's not any development. Um, North Shore, sorry, until you go down the roads a little bit. And then on either side, east or west, it's forested right now. And then as you head north on that Possum Trot Road right there, there's a couple of cabins that are way back in there, but it's not in like a very populated um, district or there's no density of housing at all there. The next regularly scheduled utility service board meeting will be held on January 29th. <laughs> Up next, we have a recent roundup of news in the disability community on the latest episode of Disabilitin. We turn to producer Abe Shapiro for more. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro. And this is Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. And we're back with Disabilitin after a brief hiatus. In the world of accommodations and business news affecting the disability community, in the town of Concord, California, a $50,000 grant from the National COVID-19 Stimulus Package has created a program in which 10 local hotels now provide accommodations for guests with autism. These amenities include early checkouts, preventing guests with autism from being exposed to large crowds and lengthy waiting periods, factors that can lead to anxiety attacks for them. And as of last month, these 10 hotels in Concord now offer, quote, practice stays, end quote, so guests with autism that have proof of their diagnosis can stay at the hotels for free in order to practice independent living. In a January 24th article from the San Jose-based Mercury Times discussing this development, author Kate Bradshaw cited a 2019 survey undertaken by the International Board of Credentialing and Continuing Education Standards, which found that, quote, 
77% of families that have members with autism are hesitant to travel or visit new locations. 87% don't take family vacations, and 93% state they would travel more if there were more autism-friendly accommodations available, end quote. The IBCCES is the only independent organization in the nation that awards certification to cities that have undertaken an effort to become autism-friendly. Mesa, Arizona was the first city to be given this honor in 2019. And as of today, the city of Mesa features, quote, five hotels, 60 businesses, and 5,000 individuals now autism-certified by the IBCCES, end quote. Meanwhile, 93 airports across the country have established new resources for persons with autism through participation in the Sunflower Lanyards program, launched in 2020. A lanyard is worn by nonverbal travelers with autism to inform airport staff that such travelers with autism may need extra help in navigating airport travel. For example, at San Francisco International Airport, a program called Ready, Set, Fly, established in 2015, invites travelers with autism to go through, quote, rehearsals, unquote, for different parts of the airport process, such as security and check-in procedures. In the world of disability law, following several complaints of patients being denied medical care due to inaccessible equipment, new rules were proposed by the Department of Justice on January 12th. In the new regulations, Healthcare services offered by state and local government would be prohibited from denying care due to inaccessible machines, such as, quote, examination tables and examination chairs used for eye and dental examinations or procedures, weight scales, mammography equipment, and x-ray machines, end quote. The rule falls under Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which protects individuals with disabilities from discrimination, Title II of the Act requires that medical services offered by state and local governments must be accessible to people with disabilities, which would apply to hospitals and other health care providers that are government-run. If approved, hospitals and other public medical care facilities across the country would have one to two years to acquire the necessary equipment and ensure its accessibility. In Los Angeles, California, a jury meant to decide the fate of Los Angeles Police Department officer Salvador Sanchez became deadlocked last week, resulting in the declaration of a mistrial. During a confrontation at a Costco in June 2019, Officer Sanchez shot and killed 32-year-old Kenneth French, a man with a nonverbal disability. Officer Sanchez was fired as a result of the incident a year later and charged with one count of voluntary manslaughter and two counts of assault with a firearm in August 2021. It took three and a half days of jury discussion before the mistrial was declared, according to a Los Angeles Times article published January 23rd. A hearing is slated for February 13th to decide if Sanchez will be retried. And in a follow-up to our previous installment's cliffhanger and coverage, the Supreme Court, in one of its final decisions of 2023, voted unanimously to dismiss a lawsuit regarding a hotel website's alleged violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as a Department of Justice regulation. The case, Atchison v. Lawfer, was argued before the court on October 4th and sought to determine if a, quote, Americans with Disabilities Act tester, end quote, could sue a hotel for failing to maintain website accessibility on its reservation page, even if said tester had no plans to stay at said hotel. Under the reservation rule passed in 2010 by the Department of Justice, 
the one which the plaintiffs Deborah Loffer sued under, hotels must quote in their reservation services, identify and describe accessible features in their guest room so that individuals with disabilities can assess whether a given hotel or guest room meets his or her accessibility needs, end quote. As an ADA tester, the plaintiff Deborah Lawfer had previously filed over 600 lawsuits against hotels that allegedly did not provide accessible information on their website's registration page, despite Lawfer having no intention of staying at said hotels, most of whom settled before trial. Ms. Lawfer had already filed to dismiss her lawsuit against Atchison on July 24, 2023, after her lawyer was found to have committed ethics violations in his filings against other hotels for alleged discrimination. Before the dismissal, Lawfer had argued that she had standing to sue under the Department of Justice's reservation rule, as she was unable to access information regarding accessibility on Atchison Hotel's reservation page, just as other guests with disabilities could not. Atchison Hotels responded that as it had added on its reservation website that its rooms were not ADA accessible, following Lawfer's filing of the lawsuit, Lawfer's case was not justified. The company also argued that since Lawfer never intended to visit the hotel in the first place, that the Americans with Disabilities Act and the reservation regulation only require that hotels provide equal access to reservation services rather than complete room accessibility information, and the requirement that a plaintiff suing for discrimination prove they alone were injured by such action rather than such an action impacting a general population alone, Lawfer had no standing to sue. What's more, Lawfer's intent to sue on behalf of those impacted in the disability community would go beyond what Congress intended when the ADA was originally passed. Though arguments were still held last October 4th, Justice Amy Comey Barrett, writing for the unanimous opinion, published on December 5th, declared that although it appeared Lawfer did not forfeit her case to prevent losing, the court might address future lawsuits differently. Justice Clarence Thomas concurred with Justice Barrett, but expanded further on Lawfer's standing to file a lawsuit, writing that because Title III of the ADA does not mention a right to information outright, and since Lawfer did not intend to stay at the hotel, she was not personally injured, and could therefore not sue on behalf of the entire disability population as this was not what the ADA intended when originally passed. Justice Thomas supported his contention by citing the 1982 ruling of Haven's Realty v. Coleman, which Ms. Lawfer had relied upon in her arguments. In this case, the court ruled that the Fair Housing Act explicitly mentions that potential tenants, including testers, have a personal right to accurate information and that landlords cannot deny potential access to a living space by providing false information. Although the two testers in the case had no intention of staying at the living space, the white tester was granted access to and provided accurate property information, whereas the black tester was not. This qualified as a personal injury under the Fair Housing Act, as the landlord had discriminated on the basis of racism, thereby giving the black tester standing to sue. And finally, some exciting news here at WFHB. Starting in February, Disabulletin will now air on Tuesdays at 5.30 p.m. for 30 minutes following the WFHB local news. I look forward to expanding our time together and discussing the top stories of the disability community from sea to shining sea, ethically and impartially. Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.
This month, on the latest edition of Civic Conversations, we welcomed Dr. Michael Hicks, Distinguished Professor of Economics and Business Research and the Director of the Center of Business Economic Research at Ball State University. His work has appeared not only in scholarly sources, but also in such publications and media as Rolling Stone, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, MSNBC, NPR, and Fox Business News. Dr. Hicks joined us to discuss the impact public schools have on a community's economic development. We turn now to Civic Conversations on the WFHB Local News. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased that you can find Civic Conversations each month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. You can also find every podcast at the League website, whose address is www.lwv-bmc.org. Once again, more slowly, lwv-bmc.org. Today's guest is Michael Hicks, who is Distinguished Professor of Economics and Business Research at Indiana's Ball State University. His work has appeared not only in scholarly sources, but also in such media as Rolling Stone, yes, I said Rolling Stone, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, MSNBC, NPR, and Fox Business News. And today I hope Dr. Hicks will tell us some things that Hoosiers ought to know about public policy, schools, and economic development. First off. Good to be uh, here, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, glad to see you here. Uh, First, I'd like you to talk a bit about state support of public schools. I've heard, I think I got it from something I read that from you, that back in 2019, 2020, state support of Indiana's public schools fell by $88 million, which seemed like a big number to me and largely perhaps because of school choice. And I've also heard that this reflects our legislature's general hostility to public education. Please comment on this. Well, uh, you know, that's a great question. If we go back even farther, uh, let's go back to 2000, before school choice, uh, and as we move forward, 2007, 2008, the state took over 100% of operational funding of schools. And then between, and at the same time, uh, introduced school choice allowed uh, a limited voucher program. It created and expanded charter schools, which first started in 2000, 2001, and then added a voucher program to private schools, which slowly grew. Um, And indeed, by 2019, the state was allocating about $80 million to uh, voucher programs. And, and other charters, both of those programs are a little bit less expensive than a traditional uh, school, but at, at the same time, um, enrollment share of students in traditional public schools remained pr- pretty solid. In fact, it's higher now than it was back in 2000 before school choice started. So the real challenge is, did this funding really come out of the pockets of public schools? Um, uh, and that's that's question one. The second one, is that the real problem? So let me address these two 
it's it's kind of a challenge. We don't know how many of those kids who were receiving vouchers back in 2018-19 would have gone to, to public schools. Um, private schools price discriminate in, in the sense that they typically charge less for poor students to, to attend those schools. And so uh, it could be that a number of those kids would have gone to public schools. Um, but the, the big point is that if you look at overall enrollment, a little over a million kids in Indiana schools that taxpayers are, sub, are paying for fully or partially, that $80 million is a tiny amount of money. Um, the total spending per student is going to be about $10,000 state and federal per school. So that 80, 80, that's $80 a kid. So it's, a, it's, it's you know, less than a percent of what um, federal, state, and local taxpayers are spending on schools here in Indiana. The, the bigger challenge is that beginning right after the Great Recession of 2010, Indiana held its uh, funding constant in inflation-adjusted terms as our economy expanded. And so we are spending about a third less on education of all types uh, out of our gross domestic product, the size of our economy, as we were doing in 2010. And so if we were still spending the amount of money that we were, had been spending back in 2010 on schools, both, both you know, private voucher programs, public schools, and charter schools, then that'd be close to $2 billion more per year, uh, which is close to $2,000 per student more. So I've, I've tried to remind people, if you're thinking about where the funding challenges are coming in public education, it's the fact that we have really frozen what we're spending on schools and we're taking all the extra tax dollars we get and we're we're spending them on workforce development we're increasing spending on family and social services we're increasing medicaid funding and we're increasing economic development tax incentives so all of those things are really evidence of a, of problems in underlying education and so what we're doing is instead of trying to spend money to mitigate potential long-term economic conditions uh, or to, to, to remedy shortfalls in educational attainment, we're spending money to mitigate the effect of shortfalls in educational attainment. And I think that's the, that's the bigger problem than haggling about uh, charters or vouchers, which are really a, a fairly small share of, of overall student enrollment in Indiana. Okay, well, that's good to know. Uh, let's talk a bit about the concept of fair school funding. What is fair school funding, in your opinion? And in your opinion, does Indiana achieve fair funding for its schools? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, economists are poorly poised to answer questions of fairness. What I will say, we do a pretty good job on the state side operational funding. Indiana is a state that 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 has a base funding level for every student, and then they have two other two big extra tranches of money. One is aimed at poor schools. And they measure poorness by, you know, a three-metric measure, um, uh, the number of students on free and reduced lunch, number on Medicaid, uh, or me and then the number of kids who are in foster care. And so that's the complexity formula. And that really goes to much higher level. So the, the state spends the least money per student in Carmel schools and the most money per student in Gary schools. Hmm. And then the second component of this is, and, and federal government follows a similar formulary that puts more money into poor schools. So we do a pretty good job of that. What we what we still do is pay for transportation of students 
and building facilities through property taxes, which are less equally distributed uh, between places. But I do think Indiana does a pretty good job of aiming money towards poor students. It's it's there's still a question whether that's enough to fully mitigate the effects of poverty or whether or not. Uh, even for uh, more affluent school corporations, if there isn't a challenge. And I think the evidence is that we're seeing a lot of schools, uh, 30-some now, that have had referendum to spend more money on operation, that there's growing belief that the, there needs to be more money on spent on public education around the state. I see. Uh, what can you tell us about the impact of public schools uh, on a community's uh, economic development? So that's uh, that's the key to the question to an economist is what is this key public service doing to, to make you better off? And um, I've written an awful lot about this. I'll just cut right to the chase. Without really top-notch public schools, it's virtually impossible to grow an economy. Population growth in Indiana is concentrated amongst the 20% or so of top-ranked schools. And if you look at just the grades, 2016, 2017 is the last year we graded schools. The only school corporations that saw enrollment growth were A schools. So the other 90% of school corporations saw actual decline. So across the state, we have 290 school corporations, about half are losing students. The smaller half, it's 70, 80%. And there's no natural growth in those places. So if a, one school is growing, it's mostly because they're attracting students from adjacent or proximal school corporations because they're performing better. And so key uh, e to attracting people and attracting businesses are going to be having a, access to an above-average school corporation. Indiana just doesn't have a ton of those that are nationally competitive on the sort of measures that families are likely to look. But there's also the the, the supply side effect. It, the 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 people who are most lo- likely to stay in a community um, are people who grew up there. And so, if you have low levels of educational attainment, what you're what you're what you're really doing is leaving more more poorly educated people in your community and not uh, educating people who are likely to come back to it. And so, from a, both the demand side and a supply side, schools are the key to economic growth. And and I think um, places that are struggling in Indiana, uh, it's easy to identify right away where the problem is. And 99 out of 100 times, it's a school corporation that is just not acting as a magnet for new families. 